following podcast episode is a pre-recorded and edited talk as part of the Center for China Studies, China Studies webinar series. I'm very glad to invite Professor Shi Lihong to share her latest research on family planning policies and its consequences, especially among the so-called Shidu families, families that lost their only children, partly because of the policy itself. This is our Center for China Studies, China Study webinar series. I will introduce very briefly Professor Shi and turn the floor to her. Professor Shirley Hong is now Associate Professor in the Department of Anthropology at Case Western Reserve University. She received her PhD in Anthropology from Tulane University. Her research focuses on anthropology of reproduction, gender and family relations, mental health, and state-society relations in China. Her previous research looks at the reproductive choice and the family change in China, and she is the author of Choosing Daughters, Family Change in Rural China. And today she's going to share with us her latest research on Shidu parents who lost their only children. I think this is a very timely and important topic, especially the past few days. There are a lot of media discussion about whether China should completely abolish the family planning policies. Without further ado, I'd like to invite Professor Shi Hong to share with us. Thank you. This is based on my ongoing research with Shidu parents. So this is a work in progress. The Shidu parents, this is a Chinese term. It literally means losing an only child. So it refers to Chinese parents who lost their only child born under the previous one-child policy. And this is unintended consequence and also a lasting legacy of China's one-child policy. For today's talk, I want to focus on parental grief, the grief aspect among these uh, Shudu families. So first I talk about who are Shudu parents? How has the Chinese government defined this demographic group? And how many Shudu families in China? Uh, I'll briefly talk about my uh, research methods and I focus on one aspect of uh, parental grief. There has been a large number of studies on grief, mourning, and bereavement in China, mostly by anthropologists and historians. And many of these studies focus on rituals. So for example, funerals, burial rituals, grief visits. So I want to look at what happens after these this rituals. So mostly it's focused on the psycho-emotional aspect and the social aspect of parental grief. And I want to focus on the impact of child loss on personhood formation among these Shudu parents and also their socialization with their peers. And finally, I'll talk about how do they cope with child loss? How do they survive child loss in China? So first, well, the official terms for Shudu families there are different terms during different times. The first time China initiated a program for Shidu families was 2007. So there was a pilot program to aid families whose singleton child died or is disabled. So they were called And these are the criteria that the eligibility yeah, for participating in this program. So the couples whose singleton child died or is disabled and who have not have another child. So these are four eligibility. 
Uh, first is they have to be born after January 1st, 1933. Uh, why 1933? Because a Chinese couple's responsibility for family planning was written in the Chinese constitution for the first time in 1982. So for those who were born before 1933, by the year 1982, they would be 50 and older. And so the Chinese government uh, uh, defined women of reproductive age as those who are 49 and younger. So those who were born before 1933, they wouldn't be able to have another child regardless of the one-child policy. So the rationale behind this is the one-child policy did not have an impact on those who were born before 1933. So that's why, so first they have to be born after 1933. And the wife has to be 49 or older. Uh, they had only one child by birth or legal adoption, and they had no surviving children, or their only child is certified to be disabled. So if they meet this criteria, then they are eligible for this pilot program. So this program mostly is provide a monthly subsidy for these families. And in 2008, this became a nationwide policy. This was the first policy for Shudu parents. So this actually includes two types of families. One is Shudu families, and the other is families whose only child is disabled. They're also called Chandu families. And the term was changed in 2013. In 2013, the government initiated a document it was called among Shudu families as document 41. So in that document, the government for the first time acknowledged the contributions that Shudu families made to China's population control, to birth planning policy. And in that document, the Shudu family and the Chandu family, they are called families who are bothered by the birth planning policy and who have practical difficulties. But some Shudu parents didn't like the, the words practical difficulties, and they complained to the government. And they listed as one of their demands when they negotiated with the, the government. And they argue that the, the term practical difficulties labeled as families who require government aid. And they emphasize that they should be government responsibility because they abided by the policy and now they're childless. So the government should take care of them in their old age. And so they try to differentiate themselves from people with disability. So they say people with disability are those who have practical difficulties and they need government aid. We are government's responsibility. And the government listened. So in, in 2015, the government changed the term to special families who abided by the birth planning policy. So it eliminated the word kunna. So now this term, if you see news reports, mention this term, it refers to Shudu families and Chandu families. So how many Shudu families are there in China? They're different estimates, and they are mostly based on the 2010 population census. And all these different estimates, they all use one set of data, that is the mortality rates among people of different age groups. China just completed the 2020 population census, and the data will be released this year. So I think once it's released, there will be updated estimates. I'll give you two examples of the estimates. A study funded by the National Bureau of Statistics, and their estimate was by 2010, there were 670,000 Shudu mothers in China. Another estimate 
this was by a demographer, Wang Guangzhou and his team. And they estimated uh, over uh, uh, 1 million Shudu families by 2010. Ministry of Health also has the same estimate, about 1, 1 million by 2010. And they also uh, estimated 76,000 deaths each year, an increase of 76,000 each year. The number of Shudu families is increasing because that generation of parents are exiting their prime reproductive years. So if their only child dies, they will not be able to have another child. So the number will keep increasing for a certain period of time. So I did my research between 2016 and 2020 in 22 cities. Well, I visited 19 of the 22 cities. For all but four interviews, I, I did interview face-to-face. -face. And four of the interviews, I did interview by phone. And so uh, these 78 Shudu parents are from 22 cities in China. Well, I visited these cities mostly because it's very hard to recruit informants because most Shudu parents don't want to talk about their experience, which is very understandable. I used snowball sampling, so I relied on my informants. So when I talked to one informant after the interview, I would ask the person, you know, do you have friends who meet these criteria and who might be willing to talk to me? They will ask their friends, and most of them said no. And so for those who said yes, I would schedule an interview with them. And because of the social media, especially WeChat, they have friends from all over China. And so they would say, well, I have this friend from this other city. She's willing to talk to you. So I would travel to that city to, to meet that, that person. This is how I recruit my informants. So altogether, I interviewed 78 Shudu parents. 53 of them were mothers. Most of them were mothers because most of the Shudu parents who are involved in these self-organized groups, uh, these WeChat groups, most of them are women. And so they're more likely to introduce me to their female friends. Most of their friends are also women. So most of my informants are also women. They were between the age of 49 and 80. This was their age the first time when I had interview with them. For some of them, I had multiple interviews. And the majority of them were between the age of 50 and 69. In terms of their, their hukou, their household registration, 82% have urban hukou. And I intentionally recruited Shudu parents from rural areas because I want to see the, if there are any differences between the rural and the urban Shudu parents. And so with the help of a few informants, I was able to visit some villages and meet with some rural Shudu parents. And 22 among the 78 Shudu parents has one or two grandchildren whom their child left behind. 13 of them has a second child. Uh, 11 of them had another child through adoption or uh, assisted reproduction, mostly egg donation or surrogacy. And the median age of the wife when the couple had a second child was 49. The child's age at death was between 8 and 39. Most of them, the majority of them died between the age of 21 and 30. And in terms of the causes of death, mostly was due to illness, accidents, and suicide. Uh, in one case, the cause of death was murder. And the years of child loss, most of them lost a child for over four years. I intentionally recruited informants who had lost a child for more than one year.
because the first year was the most difficult time and I didn't want to bother them. And also for the first couple of years, you know, I was told most of the parents just, you know, they tend to withdraw, they would stay at home. They didn't want to make new friends with other Shudu parents. And so those who are more involved in these self-organized Shudu groups tend to be those who have lost their child for more than three years. And the other research method, participant observation, I stayed with seven Shudu families during my various field trips. And I also participated in their, their dinners, their interest group activities. So these are some opportunities which I could have this participant observation. Archival research is research on national and local policies for uh, Shudu families. So I want to contextualize my analysis. I want to focus on the impact of the child loss on personhood, uh, formation, and socialization yeah, among these Shudu parents. And I think one very important factor for the analysis is the changing family dynamics and intergenerational relations. And there has been a number of studies that point out that China has become more and more child-centered. These are some of the concepts proposed by anthropologists. The first one, child-centered relatedness, was proposed by Professor Andrew Kipnis, uh, Descending Feminism by Professor uh, Yun Xiangyan. And so all these, all these studies point out that uh, Chinese society has become increasingly child-centered. And so my informants, these Shudu parents, like their peers, they also participated in this child-centered parenting. For example, they supported their child's uh, education by providing financial support and also emotional support. They help their child with the child transition into gainful employment, marriage, and parenthood. So for example, among the 22 Shudu parents who had one or two grandchildren, 19 of them were providing intensive child care support for their child at the time of their child's death by either living with their child's family or living close to their child's family. And so they have considered their child's uh, life pursued as their own. And they identify with their child's success and failure, joy and sadness. With the premature death of their only child, this shared life, life pursuit with their only child ended. And that has an impact on their perception of uh, parenthood and also personhood. So first, I want to talk about this self-perceived parental failure. And this is often derived from strong feelings of guilt, self-blame, regret, and a sense of powerlessness for not being able to prevent their child's premature death. And the feelings of guilt can be related to circumstances uh, surrounding their child's death. So for example, some parents mentioned that their child had poor diet, and that they consider was uh, related to their child's illness. And they blame themselves for not cooking healthy food. Yeah, so they tend to blame them themselves for their child's illness. And for parents whose only child died of uh, suicide, their feelings of guilt can be even more intense. For many of these children who died by suicide, they had a clinically diagnosed uh, depression. 
before their deaths. And many of these parents didn't know about their child's diagnosis. So they blamed themselves for not being caring enough. And some of them, they did know about their child's depression, but they didn't understand how serious depression could be. And after the child's suicide, they blamed themselves. And there also the feelings of guilt can related to their parenting experiences during different stages of their child's lives. So they tend to re-examine their parenting experience and the mistakes they made. And many of the mistakes were self-perceived. They tend to magnify yeah, the mistakes that they made. Yeah, so for example, a number of parents, they mentioned that, well, their child worked really hard as a student and they didn't get to live their life to the fullest. And so they regret that they should have told their child to have more fun. You know, they shouldn't have too much expectation for their child's academic achievement. So their child could be more relaxed, could really enjoy life. And this quote is from a father. It really struck me. And so he said, I regret that I didn't try hard enough to help my daughter with her job search. This has been the hardest obstacle. So he said it's a car for me to overcome. He couldn't forgive himself for not helping his daughter. This sort of parents, they believe that the ideal for a parent, a good parent should try hard to support an only child and just take every opportunities yeah, to help that, that child with job search and marriage and transition to, to parenthood. And the father felt that he failed to live up to that ideal, child-centered parenting ideal. And so this contributed to this, his deep feelings of uh, guilt and regret. And uh, this self-perceived uh, parental failure can also often be translated into a failed personhood, the failure as a person. This is also related to the child-centered family ideal. This should parents, they told me that, you know, the, the ideal is to have a happy and intact family, with a strong parent-child bond. But with the child's death, they no longer have that anymore. But they have to continue to live in this child-centered environment. And they told me that they have reached the life stage when their peers are celebrating their child's transition into marriage and the parenthood. And as proud grandparents, uh, many of their peers like to engage in lively conversations, sharing the joy of grandparenting. And those who haven't become a, a grandparent yet like to exchange news about their child. So socialization with their peers constantly reminded them of their loss. This contributed to their feelings of a failure. They failed to live up to this ideal. And so this is one uh, Shudu mother's uh, quote. Whenever I compare my life with my friends' lives, I feel like a loser. Uh, I no longer have a happy and intact family. Many of them mentioned the feelings of inferior, or not being able to hold their head high. One Shudu father, his quote is very typical. Many of my influence mentioned why they don't want to have dinners with their former uh, friends. And so this father said, I used to enjoy having dinner with my former classmates. After my son died, I no longer want to go to the dinners. My son was a good child. He had a very good job. If my son had been alive, my former classmates would have for sure wanted their daughter to date him. I too would have been a grandfather already. 
Now, how can I go to the dinners and hear them talk about their child and grandchild? They found it really hard to socialize with their previous social circle because of this self-perceived failed personhood. And I also want to mention that three of the Shudu fathers, they particularly mentioned that all of them had a son, and so they lost their only son. They mentioned that now their their family is ended, you know, is, is, is ruined. And so they especially, they cared about not having a son to, to pass on the family line anymore. And so that sense of failure you know, contributes to how should the parents cope with this sense of failure? And as they continue to live in this child-centered environment, how do they survive child loss? And so these are some of their coping strategies. One is self-isolation. So they tend to isolate from their previous social circle. For example, that Shudu father whom I quoted, so many of them stopped going to gatherings with their friends, you know, former colleagues. They just keep a distance from their previous social circle. Some of them prefer not to attend the wedding of a, a friend's child. This is also just try to avoid avoid the pain because attending a wedding of a friend's child is is very hard for them, especially for those whose child died before they were able to marry. And some of them moved to a new neighborhood and they say that in in the old neighborhood, everybody knew that their child died. And they would say that their neighbors look at them differently. They would give them that this sympathetic gaze. And some of them would ask about their child. And so they, they try to avoid that. So some of them moved to a new neighborhood where nobody knew about their child loss. And when they met new acquaintances, when they were asked about their child, they usually just lie. Yeah, many of them, they will lie. They would, they would come up with a story. They would say their child was living in a different city. So the child can't come back very often. Uh, the, the child lives overseas and live in the United States, so can't come back. So this is their way uh, to try to avoid any conversation about their child. And they also try to avoid holiday celebrations. And so they say that the hardest time for them uh, are the child's birthday, death anniversary, and the holidays, especially Chinese New Year. And some of them, they would leave, they leave home and they would travel to other places. They find a quieter place to avoid any holiday celebration. And another strategy is collective healing. And this is called by Shudu parents as hugging from warmth. Basically, they self-organize these groups and they use these kinship terms to refer to each other. And so, for example, they call their Shudu friends family, brothers and sisters, which means friends with, uh, with the same fate. They especially value this, uh, this self-organized Shudu community uh, because they say that they, they, their families and their, their friends don't really understand their pain because they do not have that experience. So they really value this experiential knowledge among these, uh, these Shudu families. And this one Shudu mother, uh, this is her quote. So she said, my relatives and friends don't understand how I really feel because they don't share my pain. But when I talk to my sisters, I feel they know exactly how it feels to lose an only child. Shudu parents, they often meet each other through uh, mutual friends or through online community, through WeChat groups. Some of them met each other through 
activities, events organized by the local government or non-governmental organizations. Some local government receive funding from the upper government to provide services for Shudu families. And so usually they have uh, these interest groups. And so the government, the local government will pay for teacher you know, to teach them uh, how to sing, you know, dance, or doing photography or making crafts. So some of these Shudu parents, they got to know each other through these organized events once they meet. So these are various ways that they provide support yeah, through this collective healing. One is a socialization. They socialize with their Shudu friends. So for example, they have dinner together. They travel. Some of them, they travel together. Some spend holidays together. So for example, some a few Shudu families would travel to a tourist resort for New Year, and they would rent, uh, rent a house and live together during the New Year uh, period. And some of them socialize in these virtual communities, and many of them they visit each other once they met via these WeChat groups. And there are also interest group activities, which I mentioned. There are also non-governmental organizations that provide these services for uh, Shudu parents. A practical support, this includes emotional support, especially the support for the recently bereaved. And this has become very important because their family and their friends do care about them, but they don't have that experience. So they don't, they can't really understand, you know, how these Shudu parents feel. But when the Shudu parents, when they meet with other Shudu parents, especially those Shudu parents who lost their child for a longer period of time, they serve as role models. So they say, you know, I survived this, so you can make it too. Yeah, and so that's very important. And for those Shudu parents, they are deeply wounded themselves, but at the same time, they're also healers for others. Other support, uh, so for example, they share information about government policies for a newly bereaved parent. And so if they join a group and so somebody will tell them, this is the local policy, this is the person you should talk to, and these are the documents that you need. And so for government uh, policies for Shudu parents, currently, mostly is a monthly stipend, the subsidy for Shudu parents, and hospital care insurance paid by the government. And more recently, subsidies for living in nursing homes. Now, these are the major government support. And so they would provide this, uh, exchange this information. Other support, for example, if a friend, if a Shudu friend uh, is sick, so they visit a friend in the hospital, or they buy groceries for a Shudu friend who is sick. So they provide this practical support. And also they, they plan to live in the same nursing homes uh, with their Shudu friends. This is uh, another example of uh, self-isolation. Most of them, they said that they prefer to share a nursing home with their Shudu friends. They don't want to live in the same nursing home with those who have children. And they said that because if they share a nursing home with those who have children, so the, the, their children would visit them and they would spend holidays with them. Uh, if they, have, they, they need help, they can turn to their children for support. If they share the same nursing home with them, that will only make, uh, make them feel sad and desperate. And so they prefer to, to have a nursing home that's reserved for uh, Shudu parents. So far, there's only one nursing home that I'm aware of in China that has a 
designated area that's reserved for uh, Shudu families. And so they're negotiating with the, the government for nursing homes for Shudu families. And at the same time, they're also planning to find a way to live together during their final years. So for example, they would visit nursing homes together. And so they would make plans, you know, maybe the several families, they can move into the same nursing home together, you know, so they're not alone, you know, they have other uh, Shudu friends. And the majority of my informants, they have not uh, reached the final stage of their lives. We still have to wait and see, you know, what's going to happen for their elder care when they, they needed support. Thanks to Professor Shili Hong for joining us and sharing her findings. And thank you all for your attention. Our next China Study webinar series will feature Professor Covell Meiskens, a historian who published a new book, Mao's Third Front. We will make announcement via email and our website. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for China Studies at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. We offer degrees from bachelor's to PhD with a diverse faculty dedicated to studying and understanding China from a multidisciplinary perspective. Special thanks to Yin Yijiao for the music. Please check out our website at ccs.cuhk.edu.hk or find us on social media. <laughs>